Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. <laughs> I imagine a number of us here have some kind of social media account on one of those platforms. I don't plan on leaving mine anytime soon, but if you are getting by without one, just keep on doing what you're doing. Now, there are some good things that social media has to offer, you know, cat videos and uh, pictures of grandchildren and all that stuff, um, good things. But probably the worst thing is all the drama, especially if you personally get wrapped up in it. And if it weren't for social media, I think that we probably wouldn't see the cancel culture that pervades our society. Social media enables our dramas to go viral. And the opinions of thousands and even millions come to bear pressure on just one little person. Whether or not you're on social media, I think we all feel the shadow of this social pressure. We live in a climate of fear that convinces us that it's just enough to survive. Keep your head low. Don't get it chopped off. Now, our minds tend to think about all the political conversations. But the reality is, is that those conversations should be a distant second to our, which would be our greatest concern in these circumstances. Our greatest concern should be the deafening sound of silence in those places the gospel should be heard, where the truth should be spoken. In today's text, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going into chapter 14, and we are transported from the company of Jesus and his disciples to the palatial abode of Herod Antipas. And it's here that we have a confrontation between speaking the truth, and the pressures of popular opinion. So I invite you to turn there with me this morning, Matthew 14, and we'll be starting in verse 1. Matthew 14, 1. Starting in verse 1, Matthew records, At that time, Herod the Tetrarch, heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And we're going to stop here, take a pause here. Let us recall kind of the question that was swilling around at the end of Matthew 13. Jesus has gone from Capernaum. He went to, over to Nazareth, his hometown, and there you might expect that he would be welcomed as this Messiah, as this Savior. And yet, the people reject him because of his common origins with them. He's just the son of a carpenter. 
He doesn't have a formal education. Where does he get off saying that he's this high authority? And really what we're wrestling with here is this continual question of, who is Jesus? Is he really this Messiah? Is he one of the prophets? So Nazareth has denied Jesus of being anything like that. It um, doesn't really say how they explain his ministry. They just, they don't like it. But here in the beginning of Matthew 14, we see that this ruler, Herod, has his own theory about who Jesus is. He thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, it's this, at this point, as we start moving into the next verse, that Matthew gets us back up to speed as to what has happened to John the Baptist that would lead Herod to spout this theory. Because we haven't even learned at this point that John the Baptist has died. So continuing on in verse 3, Matthew writes, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people, because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Certainly a very grim story and a terrible end for John the Baptist. But before we get into the action of the story, we need to clarify some of the characters here. Because the ancient world is a little bit funny in that um, fathers and sons often use the same name. So, when we're talking about Herod here, we are not talking about King Herod the Great who tried to have Jesus killed in his infancy when he went through and slaughtered all the young uh, baby boys in Bethlehem. Not the same King Herod. That Herod has died. But this is one of his sons, and we distinguish him by calling him Herod Antipas. And he, in fact, is not actually a king, though he is referenced as a king, but he's not officially so. Instead, he's a tetrarch, which under the Roman Empire is basically the position of being a governor. Um, and if we look, if you look up here, um, you can see the areas that um, Herod Antipas ruled in. He ruled up here in the area of Galilee, where Jesus had been operating. And he also operated, he also oversaw this area called Perea which is actually pretty close to Jerusalem. And this is actually where this whole scene plays out, down in this lower area. Um, Herod, when he came into power, had been mar married off to the daughter of the king, of King Aretas IV, who was the king of the kingdom of Nabatea, which um, don't, we don't have it marked out here, but it's basically this whole area over here. So they're right on the border 
with uh, Roman Palestine. Herod had been married to this woman for 15 years, and then um, it said that he took a trip to Rome and he stayed at the home of his half-brother, Philip I, and his wife, Herodias. Now, this is where it gets really, really messy. Philip I was a son of Herod the Great, and Herodias was daughter of one of his half-brothers. You might kind of get that clue. It's like, Herodias, that sounds an awful like, like, a lot like Herod. Well, it's because she's from the same family. After her father was executed by her own grandfather, Herod the Great, Herodias was married off to her half-uncle, Philip. So we have kind of an incestuous situation going on here. Uncle and niece married to each other. And here comes Herod Antipas, another half-uncle. Herodias and Antipas, while they're together on this visit, fall in love with each other. And she pressures Herod, to divorce his wife. He does this, and uh, presumably she divorces Philip, and they marry each other. And this ends up creating trouble with the Nabataeans, because as you might imagine, the king of Nabataea was not happy that his daughter was divorced by Herod, and so it creates some diplomatic difficulties for Herod Antipas, but it also creates domestic problems for Herod. Because there's this guy, John the Baptist, who's going around and he's calling out Herod and all the wrong things that he's doing. In Luke 3.19 it says that John the Baptist was calling him out on all kinds of evil things. But that this relationship that he had begun with Herodias, his marriage to his brother's wife, was featured on the top of the list. Or at least it was put on the top of the list because of the disgruntlement of Herodias herself that John was making this big fuss about this. Now, you might wonder, well, why would Herod care at all what John the Baptist has to say? We can imagine that the Roman rulers probably did some pretty immoral things. Um, And if John the Baptist said boo about it, we can imagine Pontius Pilate would have just shrugged and said too bad. Well, The Herodians care about this because while they are not actually Jews themselves, they're Idumeans, they're from the area but not actually Jews, um, they like to put on that they abided by the Jewish law. And that's why during their reign, Herod the Great had begun constructing a new temple, so he tried to kind of play along like, yeah, I'm the Jewish king, I do all these Jewish things. And so John the Baptist calling out Herod in this way was kind of starting some problems for him. And John the Baptist has good grounds for bringing this condemnation against Herod because in the scriptures, in Leviticus 18.16, it explicitly says, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Now, this is like one of those laws where it just seemed like so off. Like, okay, like, I, I would guess that that would dishonor my brother. Um, but God has to be just that explicit with us because that's just how evil the human heart is. Now, we know that in John, when John is 
calling out Herod on these things. And in his heart of hearts, what he is trying to do is help Herod. He's calling him to repentance. This is John the Baptist's whole ministry. He is calling people to repentance. He's not trying to cancel Herod. He just wants him to do what is righteous. And it seems as though he's probably one of the few people who is probably telling Herod some of these hard truths. And this reminds us of words that are given in Proverbs 27.6. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, and this is one of its bits of wisdom it gives us. It says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. So the meaning there is that a true friend will tell you something that will probably, it might hurt you, um, but it might be for your good, whereas very often your enemies will just tell you what you want to hear, or they functionally become your enemies because they don't really care what happens to you. Maybe you're useful to them, um, and so they don't want to upset you and uh, potentially make, make it so that they don't want, you don't want to be their friend anymore. A true friend is willing to even stake a relationship with another person if it means it will help their friend. So John the Baptist is doing some truth-telling here. Herod's um, entourage probably isn't saying anything. And notably, we have to ask, where are, these, where are the Pharisees? These most righteous leaders among the people. We don't see them recorded as calling out King Herod. Maybe they're whispering about it, but not enough that they would get thrown into a prison as John the Baptist has been. John the Baptist acts fearlessly in speaking the truth, even though there is plenty to fear, as is evidenced by what does happen to him. Herod doesn't listen to him. And in fact, with Herodias urging him, he arrests John the Baptist. And we did have a clue that something had happened to John the Baptist back in Matthew 11, because it says that John the Baptist is in prison. He sends his disciples to ask Jesus you know, are you, are you really truly the, the Messiah? And then Jesus says, look at my signs, look at everything that I'm doing. And so he kind of brings a word of encouragement back to John the Baptist, because John's probably wondering a little bit, like, what am I doing here? And it turns out he was in prison for a while. One Bible commentator suggests that um, John was probably in prison for about one and a half years before we get to this climax here um, in Herod's palace. And what we notice is that there's bit of a parallel between Jesus and John here, between chapter 14 and chapter 13. At the end of 13, Jesus has just gone home, and he says, you know, based on this reception, the saying is true that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. What do we see in the next chapter but a prophet, John the Baptist, being dishonored, being dishonored by Herod. Now, the reason why Herod didn't just straight out execute John right out of the gate was because it would have created an uproar among the people. It would have been politically risky. Now, he is already taking a political risk just arresting him, because that certainly would have upset the people. So he's trying, he's like concerned about. He's trying to be, play all, all sides here, and he's trying to walk this line where he, you know, Herodias is whispering in his ear, I want John arrested, and I want him killed. And he's like, I know this is going to upset the people. And so he kind of splits 
the differences. I'm just going to keep him in prison. And he seems content with that. Herod wasn't afraid of God. He was, seemed like he was mostly just afraid of his wife. He was afraid of the people. And it does seem, though, that he, that he himself was a little bit bothered by John the Baptist. Um, Matthew indicates that Herod kind of wanted to kill John the Baptist. Um, but in the Gospel of Mark, we do get some extra details that add some color. Um, in Mark 6, it, it really kind of shows how Herodias was really trying to push Herod to kill John. And then in verse 20, it says that um, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and a holy man. So saying there that Herod didn't kill him because he had some grudging respect for John. Um, and it goes on, it says, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod seems like he's kind of all over the place here. He has like a love-hate relationship with John. Herodias doesn't feel that way about John. She just wants him dead. And eventually, she finds a way. And uh, just to kind of set the scene for you, um, they're celebrating Herod's birthday, and they're at this place right along the coast of the Dead Sea called the Fortress of Machaerus. I've actually had the opportunity to go there. Um, and it's not much to look at now. It's just a pile of dirt. Um, and that kind of gives you a little bit of a perspective on power. These great, powerful people, in the end, their palace is reduced to just a pile of dirt. Um, but Herod is in his palace. They are celebrating his birthday. And in keeping kind of with the way of the Herodians, um, they're kind of having a little bit of a wild party. We can assume there's probably some excessive drinking going on. And um, Herodias sends in her daughter, and it wasn't made clear in the immediate context here, but I'm guessing this isn't Herod's um, biological daughter. Maybe it is. Um, but it could have been a daughter born through Philip. Um, she sends in her daughter to dance for Herod and his guests. And we can guess that this probably wasn't just an innocent dance, probably had a little bit of a sensual aspect to it. And uh, apparently, Herod was so pleased by the performance that he makes an oath saying that he's going to give this girl anything she wants. In verse 22 of Mark 6, it says, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And then in the verse 23, he says, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So, it seems like Herod's not in a very sober state here. He's just kind of playing wild. I'll give you half my kingdom. That was such a great dance. Ask, what, what do you want? And it kind of shows us the foolishness of making promises and oaths that you might not be ready to keep. Um, because he was not expecting the request that this girl was going to come at um, him with. And it wasn't something that came of her own thinking. It was something that Herodias had put in her mind. 
She goes to her mother, what should I ask for? She says, for John the Baptist's head. <laughs> if I was her daughter, I'd be a little bit disappointed. <laughs> disappointed, like, really? I've got to use, that's what I've got to ask for? But that's what she goes and does. She says, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, Herod is put into a state of distress. And again, the reason why he's so distressed is because he's thinking about what other people might think. On the one hand, he knows that John's a holy and righteous man. So he has God kind of in the back of his mind a little bit. And he knows what the Jewish people are going to do if he kills John. But then he looks over on his right and left and he sees his dinner guests there. All the powerful and important people there for his birthday party and he's just made an oath in their presence. And the question is, is he not going to deliver on it? Verse 9, it says that that was what was going through his mind. And eventually what he decides to do is, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to keep my oath in order not to embarrass myself in front of my friends. And so per the wish of Herodias' daughters, he has John the Baptist beheaded. And he doesn't delay because you could think like, oh, maybe you say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And then maybe a week later, they're asking, why haven't you done it? I was like, well, I kind of changed my mind a little bit. No, he does it right then, right there. Mark says, uh, that straight away they went and beheaded him and produced his head on a platter. The scene concludes in verse 12 as uh, the disciples of John the Baptist come to collect his body. It says, John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What we see here happening to John really prefigures what is going to happen to Jesus. John has been preparing the way for Jesus, saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is coming. The promised one, you know, he baptizes Jesus. He's prepared Jesus in all these other ways. And now he's even preparing Jesus through his own suffering. That this is what is going to come to Jesus. And Jesus indicates himself that he sees this prefigurement. And we'll get here eventually in Matthew, but in Matthew 17, verses 10 through th- 12 through 13, it says, Elijah has already come, this is Jesus speaking, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now the thing that I appreciate most about um, these verses here is that I think they give us a clear view of Jesus' full humanity. John was Jesus' cousin. It's easy for us to forget that, but he was actually his cousin. He was family. John had baptized Jesus. When Jesus receives this news, he doesn't give a speech. 
about how this is a great sacrifice for the kingdom of God, blah, blah, blah. Nothing like that. Nothing you might assume. Maybe that would appear in like a Jesus movie or something. No, instead it says, and he just goes off to find a place alone. And so by kind of that physical response, it seems that he is struck with grief. And his response is to get away, to be alone. And I think this offers us a good reminder that when really bad things happen in life, we don't have to paint bright colors over it. I think sometimes as Christians, we feel like we kind of have to gild everything. Oh, this is, is all right. We'll be okay. You know, and we don't leave space for weeping, for sorrow, for grieving. Jesus makes that space. He felt that need to take and process. So Jesus is reckoning with his grief, but I think at the same time, too, we might imagine that he's probably reckoning with a little bit of of fear. Not enough fear that he would turn away from the purpose for which the Father had sent him, but we do see that when he, when he is in the garden and he's anticipating his crucifixion on the cross, he asks the Father, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass, pass from me. If it's possible for this, not, that, it, that things don't have to be this way, make it, make it so, basically. And he says, not my will, but yours. So this is where we see the two brought together, where Jesus is fully human. He experiences real fears that we would experience, but he responds in a way which we wouldn't, in that he submits to the will of the Father. He trusts in the Father completely. What John's death has done is offered him a vivid reminder of where his road is taking him. Now, John exhibited faithfulness to the end, and Jesus must do the same, but to a much even higher degree. Now, when we turn to the book of Hebrews, we have an account of the faith of all those who came before Jesus. And it's a wonderful account to read, Hebrews 11. At the end, it kind of gives a record of all the sufferings, the trials that these people of faith had to go through, including John. In Hebrews 11.36, it says, Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. So all these people who came before Jesus had faith. John the Baptist had faith, but they couldn't see where it was all leading. They didn't get to see the reward of their suffering. The question is, is where is the perfect found? When would the perfect come to pass? Hebrews 12 tells us in verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith. He vindicates the faith of John and all those who came before him. And he has gone before us. He has ran ahead of us so that we might fix our eyes on him as our victor and run after him. The problem with Herod Antipas is that his eyes were fixed on all the wrong things. He fixed his eyes on a woman who wasn't his wife, who shouldn't have been his wife. He fixed his eyes on public opinion. On the one hand, trying to shut up John because of his popular influence, and on on the other, being unwilling to kill him because of that same influence. He fixed his eyes on his own pride and the opinions of his rich and powerful friends. And in the process, beheaded a man he knew was righteous. The only way which his eyes did not fix was towards God. John the Baptist was the complete opposite. While the other religious leaders looked the other way, knowing the danger and speaking against Herod, John spoke up. He spoke the truth. Not because he hated Herod, but because he loved Herod. John loved the truth and loved Herod because his eyes were fixed on God alone. He wasn't concerned about his own status or worldly measures of the success of his ministry. The Gospel of John tells us that as John the Baptist saw the crowds going to Jesus, he said, He must increase but I must decrease. Or as the NIV puts it, he must become greater, I must become less. John's surrender to God's plan and purpose was utterly complete. And so he was fearless before Herod. Before a watching world, who will you be? Who will we be? Will we live in fear of what they will say and do? Or will we only care about what God will say and what Christ has already done? Both faith and courage are needed if we only care for God's assessment. The Spirit gives us these gifts and they find their perfect anchor in Christ. He is the cause of all faith and courage. And God has given us more. A crowd of witnesses who have gone before us. All the prophets. All those faithful Christians of saints throughout history. The people who have even come before us here in this local church. We find encouragement in their example. 
all the more he has given us each other as members of the church, Christ's body, to strengthen one another, to stand firm in the faith, and to do the work of the gospel with joyful boldness. Together, we run the race. Together, we set the, forth the word that breaks the silence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the faithful example of John the Baptist, of how he fixed his eyes on you and on Jesus Christ and the work of salvation that you are bringing about through him just that he knew that he could trust you even though he was thrown into prison, even as he faced down the prospect of his own death. Father, we pray this morning that through Jesus Christ, you would give us the faith and courage that John manifested. Father, unlike Herod, help us to keep our eyes off of the powers of this world. Over, Father, help us be unconcerned with popular opinion and influence and to instead only to be concerned with your will, with what you desire for our lives, Father. Help us to be faithful to the end, knowing that you are faithful to the end and will redeem us through death, from death through Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we welcome to the pulpit Sean Carew, the director of the Providence Rescue Mission. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.